Welcome to Childhood Art, a podcast sponsored by the Center for the Study of Childhood Art at the University of Arkansas. I'm Dr. Christopher Schulte, Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Hyun Park, Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast. The Childhood Art Podcast aims to reconceptualize normative and normalizing powers at play in our understandings of and approaches to the artistic, play-based, and aesthetic practices of young people. Today, we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Tran Templeton and Dr. Vivek Vilanki. Dr. Templeton is an assistant professor of early childhood studies at the University of North Texas. Dr. Templeton studies how children construct their own identities through photography and their day-to-day -day aesthetic practices. She also thinks and writes about how adults would better see children if they stop to listen and look at what children do in and with the world. Dr. Templeton has published in journals like Children's Geographies, Harvard Educational Review, and Bank Street Occasional Papers. Dr. Vilanki is a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction and a postdoctoral fellow in the Center for Research on Race and Ethnicity and Society at Indiana University. His scholarly and artistic work center issues of migration, transnationalism, and youth identity and culture. He draws on visual methodologies and research creation in order to question the boundaries between scholarly creative work. He has worked with teachers and youth in India and the US in exploring the role of the arts and education and the possibilities for envisioning the classroom as a site for exploration, play, and imagining social, uh, socially just futures. Tran and Vivek, welcome to Childhood Art. Thank you for having us. All right. Thank you, thank you. This is exciting. So to get us started, could you each tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, perhaps something that is not present in your bio or immediately understood by those who meet you, but nonetheless important to you, who you are and what you do as a scholar? I think you should go for this one. <laughs> we, were, we were talking a lot about this because you know, it's always um, tricky to sh share something about yourself because whatever you share kind of creates another another aspect of your identity that you, you may or may not want other people to know. Um, so I think the key part of the question was around, um, and Vivek pointed this out to me, was around what will help you, us think about ourselves as scholars that others might not know, right? So I, I have two words for you, cats and comedy. I love cats and I love comedians. Um, and I know that doesn't seem ostensibly tied to what I do, but it is because I did begin my career in special education. And then I leapt over into early childhood and I, I kind of straddle um, those fields a little bit. And it may not seem obvious, but all of those, all of those populations, cats, comedians, special uh, children in special education and young children all have kind of um, more than human ways of perceiving the world is what is how I interpret it right so I always I always use cats actually in my own in my own when I talk about curriculum in the classroom and when I talk about young children um, but also I think comedians have a way of perceiving the world and articulating it in a way that we don't necessarily immediately see or grasp until they articulate it. So I don't know if that makes sense, but um, those are those are a couple of things about me. No, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Uh, and it does make sense. I think one of the things that 
Payan and I are really excited about in terms of the podcast is that, you know, there's a way in which people become orientated to your work by reading the work. And I think the podcast is an opportunity to have a different kind of encounter with the scholars and scholar practitioners who produce it. And to be able to learn a bit more about these kind of personal relations that in maybe direct or indirect ways have a kind of real material impact on the work that you do and what informs it, but isn't necessarily visible or readily registers when people engage with it. So this is terrific. It's absolutely uh, relevant. Thank you. Yeah, and I got to give uh, Chan a shout out for introducing me to Bo Burnham this summer. <laughs> so that definitely changed my life. Uh, watching, I, I'd seen Bo's uh, movies, but not the stand-up. So Chan's uh, obsession with comedians has also helped me think about the world differently, especially those the latest show. Have you, um, have you both seen Bo Burnham's Inside at all? I haven't. Okay. I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's quite uh it's his depiction of um how would you describe it, Vivek? An internal depiction an depiction of somebody's internal kind of world during the pandemic. Um and it's quite dark. Um he does it through song and yeah, it's just very, it's really interesting. Yeah, I think like a depiction of the pandemic and sort of life in late stage capitalism and thinking about our current world. Yeah, it it'll make you terrific. a little sad. <laughs> yeah, it'll make you a little sad, but uh, it, it was a great show that Tran put me on. Um, I'd say for me, it's been, it's uh, noticing how I've been drawn to objects, ideas, people. For some reason, I don't always know what that reason might be, but there's something that draws me to it. And then either months later or years later, I come back to it in a different kind of way. Um, and it's been staying present to that, like as strange as this sounds, when I finished my undergrad, I started obsessively asking friends to give me their passport photos, which in hindsight is a very strange ritual that I created. But sort of 10 years later, I'm, I'm, I've been working on passport photos as objects in a, in a different kind of way. Um, maps have also been a strange obsession. I still don't know why that is, or what that is about. Uh, but those obsessions also then frustrate people because if I start cooking something and I like it, then I start making the same thing for six weeks and then people are like, can we eat something different? Uh, but that's usually how it goes. So I don't know if it's, yeah, it's it's uh, it's an oddity. That's kind of interesting though, Vivek. I, I wonder, and sorry to, to linger on this a bit, but I, I think it's, you know, what you're describing, this kind of uh, how you become attuned to something and then sort of obsess over it. You know, I think we all do that in, in, in interesting ways, but I wonder if you could, if you wouldn't mind talking just a little bit more about, um, and maybe maybe the example of the passport photo is, is an entry point to that, but you know, what is it, what is it that about that object or about, 
you know, that artifact historically, socially, culturally that attracted you to it? And what is it that retains your attention or demands your attention repeatedly? Yeah, I don't know if there's an answer to those initial obsessions or why a particular thing happens. Sometimes it's um, it's an impulse, I think, uh, which is where I feel like academic thinking always comes later with some of these things, especially anything that uh, intrigues us or moves us individually. Uh, I think the reason is a nice post-facto addition, but it's not always that clean um but you get to the questions of the social and cultural for example with the passport photo later on initially i had no idea why i was obsessed with them there's no clear reason i guess in that kind of way with maps i have a much more clearer answer because i just found it absurd from like sixth grade why my geography teacher wanted me to point out canberra on a world map and if I got it one millimeter off, she would, you know, grade me down. And I was like, how does it matter whether I know on this scale of piece of paper where a particular city sits? Yeah, that I mean, that ties to why we do what we do and why we presented what we presented. Um, mm -hmm. was, which was actually, a, and you're not asking about this, but it was actually a coincidence how we, because we spend so much time talking, we ended up talking about some things that we were thinking about in our research and finding that connection between what we both do. Um, that's how our, our partnership started with just, we started with just thinking about photos together because you had been working on your dissertation and I was showing you some of my tracings. So I, I trace children's photos to try to see if I see what they see. Um, and then we, we, our friendship began from there and um, it really was just about just talking about things we were interested in and that led to this project because we were there were just such clear alignments and and clear um, perspectives that we both had about school curriculum and children and youth. I wonder if well, I have several questions now, but I wonder if the two of you could talk a little bit about what some of those perspectives were that you had maybe about school or about children and youth that you found were, you know, maybe early on and still today kind of uh, things that really pushed you together and, and moved you to engage in discussion about, uh, you know, these concerns and, and why they're important to talk about and to reconceptualize. Should we just say that we hate school? <laughs> <laughs> We were just talking about it this morning that it's, it's so ironic that we, we do have negative feelings towards school and schooling, let's say schooling instead of school, um, but yet we find ourselves in a profession where we're in it, right? We're um, working with school teachers or soon to be school teachers. And, but I think that's partially why we do, we are in education is because we want to change the way people see children and youth. Um, and, it seems, it seems so obvious that children are full, full complex people, but it, but yet it's not. Um, so, I think we both share that perspective around um, how 
how children and youth are seen and positioned in school. So much of school is focused on curriculum, centered on the curriculum being the thing that, that is central versus the people that it's supposed to serve. So that would be one shared perspective. Yeah, I, I, I think like something that I really love and admire about trans work is that it's um, so attuned to the aliveness of uh, young people and how they exist in the world um, and paying attention to that. I feel like school is doing the opposite, kind of beating that out of all of us. And in my work with youth, especially as, you know, uh, they're either starting college or just finishing high school, the wounds of schooling feel like they're so deep for people that it then takes um, years of time to just undo all of that and i'm including myself in this category right now because i think there are very clearly that map story has lingered with me when i'm still thinking about it as one example but all of us have been affected by schooling i think to go back to what tran was kind of drawing attention to that we've been affected in these complex ways where we're all sort of trying to undo things that implicitly explicitly we've been um, taught to value or question and if i had to say one thing that i really um i'm still trying to unlearn kind of goes back to this um, earlier idea that we were talking about which is trusting our own curiosities desires pleasures and joys School has always made us doubt those, you know, you're supposed to question those <laughs> curiosities, joys, desires, rather than follow them. And I'm still trying to unlearn that. And I feel like, yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm curious to see what a world would look like where we're all allowed to pursue those. We were just talking this morning about the fact that that came back from a, what was it, a, a printmaking? shop and where he got to be making and, and doing things with his hands and how I've been working in the last week with material inquiry, which is uh, something that Marto Cabral and Sean Justice introduced me to. So I've been think doing material inquiry with my undergrads and seeing just how difficult it is at first for them to inquire or be curious about a material and to follow it because they just look at it and they, they want to kind of lightly put things on top of each other, you know, when, when I ask them to create a sculpture. Um, but then when I ask them to, when I just keep pushing them, and I'm not usually, I'm not a teacher who, who pushes a lot, but in this case, I want them to see what, how children feel the world through materials. So I ask them to ruin the materials. I ask them to like really um, come get to the edge of these materials. And then they create, start creating, and then they find themselves in this deep flow where by the end of class, they are astounded that we just spent 50 minutes making one thing. And I try to remind them that this is what school is supposed to feel like. It's, it should feel like this, not drudgery, you know? Um, so yeah, I think we, we both share the idea that school should be better. It should be a better place for kids and uh, children and youth, and it should be a better place for teachers too where we feel alive. Yeah, I think um, 
one of the things that really strikes me about what you're saying, and, I, and you know, as, a, as an art, artist, teacher, educator, I feel this all the time, which is this tension between, um, you know, working with students to imagine uh, a life in school that's, that's, that's worth living, right? And a, a, a life in school that, that uh, creates additional new and different and unsettling possibilities, right? And at the same time, like being really honest and candid about uh, the violence that school does, right? And uh, systemically, um, how, how it reproduces its own practices, which perpetuate that violence and, and trying to foster a kind of awareness for it and how to rework it and um, uh, cut it down in process. And that's a, that's a delicate dance with, uh, especially with uh, teacher education students. Um, it reminds me too of this big question that you asked in your talk. Um, which is how does place matter in children's lives? And it seems like that question is always sort of being asked in parallel to how does place get to matter in children's lives, especially in school. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about that kind of tension. So uh, Chan and I were talking about this earlier and we were trying to think about our own sort of uh, childhoods and our own experience of school, uh, schooling uh, and place as young people. And again, kind of going back to trans work or the photographs that the children in her study make, it is often amply evident to me when young people are engaging with the world that they are attuned to matter, material and life in a way that we adults never are. Uh, or can be only under certain circumstances. And when I think about schooling, I think about the places where, um, again, children and young people are most alive and those are not places of the classroom. In my own experience, it was always like in the playground, in the hallways, between walking to certain places, sometimes in the bathroom, sometimes at the bus stop, um, so the fact that the, the world we live in, the physical world that we live in has largely been constructed by adults for adults means that children and young people are carving out spaces in the nooks and crannies of spaces that really haven't been created or built for them. Yeah, I think about um, the fact that the one place I would love to go back to is the dark room in high school when I was a yearbook editor and I loved that place and I still think about it. it's been over 20 years um, but what is it about that place that tiny little room in this large large um, school building that made such an impact on me and um, I'm not sure if I'm getting at the question my sense is that you are right and it it seems to me that what you're alluding to, Tran, is, is how um, that one place really came to matter for you as a student, that it, it sort of activated a set of potentials to be otherwise and to exist uh, and otherwise within a space that, generally speaking, doesn't allow for it, 
right? Or, or shuts those possibilities down. Yeah, I, so I think that that's, you know, the uh, teaching has the capacity to enable those kinds of spaces and places to emerge. Um, and I think our practice in particular, especially when young people have the kind of authorial power to dictate uh, what, what art as a site uh, can make possible, uh, also has that same power. And so it's an interesting, it doesn't have an answer per se or like a prescribed outcome. It's, it's a, um, in, in other words, it's a kind of attitude that one has to cultivate and sort of remind themselves as something to help foster and, and, and build. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and getting back to that question of, or that conversation we had around school and the, it's, it's centering curriculum, you know, curriculum doesn't center questions of what children are doing, where, when, how, and with what purposes. And if we, if we thought about that as central to curriculum, how much would school be different and better? I think what you just shared, Tran, relates to um, that the statement that was mentioned in your talk, places are shaped by the more than human bodies, human bodies and histories and stories of the place. So um, I think I'm wondering, you know, you already started um, off by sharing your own personal um, story, but I'm wondering if you have um, any other stories that reflect your understanding of a place as a young child? And if so, how have you managed to carry these stories with you? Um, and what kind of work do they do in your life, especially um, your scholarship? That's such a hard question. <laughs> but if I can just, uh, I did want to bring up the fact that that quote that you pulled out is an idea that we um, that we that were that, that was inspired by Numalo and Rubin's work. So they they in turn were inspired by Tuck and McKenzie's place in the research text. So their specific quote is from this is Numalo and Rubin's. Um, their specific quote is from the posthumanist posthumanism and literacy education book, where they recognize that place is not innocent or blank until we make sense of it, but rather it's always been and, and continues to be. Um, so their, their specific quote, sorry to get to it, is more than human bodies, place-specific stories, ontologies, and histories, as well as humans are all lively and entangled participants in the shaping of place. And I think Vivek you know, had referred to this um, earlier in thinking about the aliveness and the energy that we feel in certain places and not all places, especially in school. And those places tend to be liminal spaces, the hallways. I always, I always think about my walk from one building of school to another building between the two school buses and just looking at all that was around me that wasn't human and all, you know, the aliveness of hearing the crickets and the birds. Um, yeah, I think, you know, as a child, it's hard for you to know that you're, you're on indigenous land or that, you know, there's, but you feel it, like you feel that there's something, thing, something happening here that's beyond me, right? And let me just let me just pause and take that in. Of course, again, as a child and as a young person, I wasn't always able to articulate what that is, was, and I still am not. But that recognition that there's something else happening outside myself with with me there is is. Uh, 
important to hold on to in some way. And I still grapple with how do I help pre-service teachers or master students or doctoral students understand that? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I've been curious about this myself in relation to children's drawing, right? That, you know, when children, for example, draw, sit down at the drawing table, they also sit down at a drawing table that's located in a classroom within the context of a curriculum surrounded by decisions and, and tendencies that uh, teachers may have about that space and its materials, the time that's allotted, expectations, aesthetic preferences, and so on and so forth. And so what you referred to in terms of uh, Numalo and Ruben's work about, you know, place always was and it's, it's always, always is and is still becoming, right? That, you know, that kind of broader uh, structural, um, the way in which the classroom is structured historically, the way in which the curriculum has been constructed in that space, the way it is moved or goaded and guided by decisions of the teachers. Um, th those, those things are felt deeply on one's body as it moves through that, that space. And so, you know, the curriculum, for example, uh, you know, I think young people learn pretty quickly in terms of art making what it is adults around them value. And oftentimes adults don't quite understand the impact of that on a daily basis when they're simply engaged in, in drawing something that's of interest to them. They're drawing something of interest in relationship to a force that isn't always visible or heard, or, but, but it's nonetheless present. Uh, and I, you know, Hayan I know has is, is written about this as well, but you know, that, that has a real material effect um, on children's body, their lives, their experience, and it accumulates. Yeah, I was definitely thinking about uh, Heian's piece of painting out of the lines. Um, and it, again, thinking about this idea that children and young people are often already doing this work. It's not in the classroom. It's not in the school. It's often outside the purview of adults, but it's happening. Um, and sometimes even in the classroom, uh, hey, on, you should talk about this, but I, I love that you're showing how children are experimenting with that space, right? They're pushing the boundaries constantly and saying, can we do this? Are the adults gonna be, you know, policing us about this or can we kind of experiment and play? Which is which to me is also the exciting part is just knowing that it's happening and can we pay attention to it and we can we actually learn from it, which is which which are both things in some ways that are missing in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I'm someone who's really interested in that type of politics and the dynamics between adult and children and you know, I think they're always, children are always aware, um, very acutely aware of what adults want them to achieve in a certain task or curriculum. And, but they also, like you mentioned, that they're playing with it. Um, they're trying to test the boundaries. They are really having a struggle between their own desire and having to meet that um, expectation from the adults. So. 
I think, you know, as uh, adults who, um, for me personally, at least, who was not the teacher in that classroom space, had the privilege to observe that and just see how much children, um, you know, were experimenting with it or just really, you know, be in that moment of um, struggle, um, but still were able to navigate it. Um, and in, in that particular piece that I wrote about, they were able to do it in the way that they desired. So their, their desire was bigger <laughs> than, the, than the desire to uh, meet the expectations. So, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I'm, I think about this not in relation to children, only, but also our undergraduates and, you know, and seeing the ways that they struggle. I mean, they are taking, you know, multiple courses with different expectations and they, they understand each set of expectations, but to have to meet them is a whole other thing. And then the expectations of the world outside of them, their social, their social worlds and um, families and whatever else. I see that playing, I see that really weighing down on them. Um, I'm thinking a lot about students' mental health these days and the accumulation of all these years of schooling and expectations and demands and curriculum. And um, yeah, it's, it's a lot to think about. And it starts when they're so young. And I think this is what we love. We love to see this resistance, but when they are, when they move through school and everything becomes higher and higher stakes, Right, the college grades lead, or they're told that college grades or college leads to this and that. Um, it just, it feels like a lot. So as it relates to the under, undergraduate students that you're working with, like I think this is one of the, it just on, continues to be one of the biggest challenges, which is, you know, school tends to decontextualize children's lives. It, it, it tends to treat place and, space and children's relations to the world, uh, those ideas as a kind of backdrop, if you will. And what we're trying to, what it sounds like we're trying to do is to really move undergraduates to think about how schooling, for example, is, a, is differentially situated and how, you know, how it's not something that's universal and generalized, but rather particular relational, uh, specific influx. And that's a, that is a complicated task, right? And, you know, it's what, in some ways, it's what Namalo called, like we're trying to orient people to what Namalo calls a play, the play stories of, of children's schooling, right? And to attune ourselves to that. And I wonder, like, how, how do you all, uh, Vivek and Tran, like, what, what are some of the things that you're doing with students currently, undergraduate students, that is, to really uh, move them to think critically about these concerns and about what it means for them as teachers? I'd say, before I can even get to that question, um, the poet Lely Long Soldier in another podcast was citing and quoting somebody else. I don't remember who it was, but... The point was that universities, especially within the US, the way they've been constructed and situated, almost exist like placeless entities. And I think I have a certain um, feeling of um, discomfort 
but also guilt at how easily we move across these large land-based entities that are residing and existing on indigenous stolen land, but also how little connection I often definitely have to, to the place and what that means. Um, and that's an institutional issue, that's a structural issue, that's a political, social, but also an individual issue, right? So when I think about how do we attune young people, undergraduates to thinking about place differently, mm, again, this is where like trans work, Malu and Ruben's work, mm, and other folks working in this area, um, it really brings attention to it is how, how can we learn from children who are already thinking on those lines or really pushing our understanding of, of work. My agenda as an educator is often rather than is to point out that we've all been homogenized into thinking about place in a particular kind of way as adults, right? I think adults are fairly boring people or at least have a very normative, boring understanding of the world, especially when seen in, in relation to children and younger people. So how do we, me and the um, uh, prospective teachers, how can we sit and look at all the habitual ways in which we've gotten used to thinking about um, place and the place we live in and how do we possibly interrupt that and turn towards um, children and young people who are, you know, alive in a different kind of way. Um, and that I think to me is, is the possibility of like the work that Samina Mishra and Shaina Dastur have done in Okla, in Delhi, um, or people in different parts of the world are doing this work. Uh, that is the exciting part is to be like, look, children are really looking at the world in interesting ways. Like, what can we learn from that? So um, all of my courses begin with looking at children outside of school. <clears throat> and because the undergraduates are so immersed in, or for the most part, immersed in social media, where they are already looking at uh, viral videos of children, oftentimes the videos that I show in class are from TikTok or YouTube or Twitter. So they may have already seen it but they haven't seen it, right? Um, so we spend time belaboring the details within a 15 second video, kind of trying to identify what knowledges do these children have? What affords them that knowledge within the environment? Uh, is it the materials? Well, it often is materials. Um, who else is there? The kinds of freedoms and rules that are afforded to them. And that's a framework that's, um, that Haney Yoon and I have worked with for a few years. It comes from Howard Chudikoff's work around children's play. So I use that framework across a lot of my courses, but first it's thinking about who are children outside of school? What do we, what can we see in terms of their knowledges and, and expertise and skills, even at the age of two? You know, I love to bring in, uh, I love toddlers. So I love to bring in videos of infants and toddlers and the ways that they move through the world. And sometimes there, you know, oftentimes there are no words. So they have to be attuned to the extra verbal um, aspects of children. And so we start with that and then we think about, okay, so at that point, they're starting to see that children are agentic, are inquirers, are, are intellectual beings. 
And then we think about school and I have them think back to high school uh, or whatever aspect of school they'd like to think about and the rules and processes and practices within school. And if we talk about school lunch, we can have a couple of days of conversation about how school lunch was traumatizing or dress codes or you know, just lining up. Um, so they will start to make that connection of, oh, wow, I, this is what school is like, but this is what children are like. Like we just talked about children being these creative, brilliant beings, and then school does this. So we can't possibly see children when we have those things in place. And then we move into thinking about emergent curriculum and Reggio and loose parts and material inquiry. And my hope is that they're making those connections that there's a different way of doing school than what we know. I think at the, that point they start to see it. Um, so that's, you know, that's what I hope to do in 15 weeks with them when I have them for, for a full semester and I move them through that, that logic. Does that make sense? So um, I'm, I'm gonna sh shift gears just slightly, but uh, the, you know, the paper that the two of you presented um, as part of the Childhood Art Speaker Series was terrific, by the way. And I know you'd mentioned it's close to being published or is on the way. So I wanted to make sure that one, we gave you, gave you a chance to kind of uh, publicize where that's gonna happen and maybe when. And then I wanted to just quickly follow up with a, an additional question if I could. Yeah, so that will be in the March 2022 issue of Language Arts. Great, thank you. Uh, I hope everyone will enjoy that as much as we did, at least the early version of it on, on the speaker series. And I'm curious too, you know, just in terms of, of, of thinking uh, critically about place in children's lives, where, where, where are those considerations taking the two of you now in your research? What do you find yourself uh, and again, I don't, it, it may not be clean, it could be really messy at this point, which is perfectly acceptable, but what do you find yourself contemplating now for that, that kind of next series of questions or inquiries that you're pursuing? I think something with the, the opportunity to write that paper and to think with Tran and then to present that um, through the speaker series and then to continue this conversation in this form has, at least made me think about a couple of things. Like first is we're still very much in the middle of a pandemic. Our relationships to place for, for many people around the world has been radically altered, but also we're in the middle of experiencing climate change in a very drastic kind of way. And as an adult, I find myself asking myself the question of how are we gonna assume responsibility for what has been done to the planet and what we continue to do it to do it. And also becoming aware that children and young people are asking that question of us too in different kinds of ways, you know, whether that is at protests internationally or at smaller scale in places that we inhabit. Um, I think that question takes on an urgency, which is very immediate. Um, but I don't see that urgency uh, being attended to uh, or responded to with any amount of um, 
care, attention, or respect to the children and the young people asking that question. So that makes me feel complicit, makes me feel guilty, makes me feel angry and sad, a combination of those things. Um, but also in terms of the, the direction of this, the possibility of this work and how place factors in, in young people's lives is again, thinking back to kind of the earlier question that you asked, like, which is how do we see place or how did we see places as young people? So often I think about Hyderabad, which is where I grew up in India. And the for, for people who from there, they might know this. And if you don't, like it's, um, it, it sits on a plateau and it has these amazing rock formations um, that have been there for hundreds of years. In the last 20 years, since I was a kid, a lot of that has been raised to the ground and replaced by concrete. So when I think about my own schooling, I think about what would my geography class have looked like if it was not merely a question of learning what already exists, but also an imagination of the present and the future. Uh, I think the imagination of the present was something that my friends and I constructed just by living and being there, which is kind of what Tran was saying, you know, we'd run around and pluck tamarind leaves when they were just coming out. We'd eat flowers on the side of the road, drink sugarcane juice from the uncle who would make sugarcane juice fresh. But the future is not something that I had been asked to think about, or I think the adults considered it or are still considering it. Everything has been raised and the consequences of it now are becoming obvious that we will have to face it. But how do we attend to that? How do we respond to that? And finally, I think with my own sort of visual work and Tran and I have been asking like, education is so vision-based. How do we think about other forms of knowing and being? Um, people who are working with sound, mm, Cassie, John Bargo. Uh, I've been thinking about touch in a different context. Uh, Tran was bringing up the idea of smell and taste. Um, how do we respond to all of those ways of being, living, and, and knowing a place? Yeah, so that's a long ramble about nothing, I guess. <laughs> it feels like you rehearsed without me. <laughs> Um, my, my thing will be very short that, and it's referring back to this piece that Maggie Harvey, who's an under, who was an undergraduate at UNT, who is now an associate director of our new center for young children. She and, or they and I collaborated on working uh, around thinking about the fact that um, the center that we had been studying had, had spent money on a nature playground. Um, and this nature playground was highly curated, designed by an adult, one adult. And meanwhile, um, Maggie had discovered that there was a creek behind the school that was its own nature, quote unquote, nature playground. Um, and so we were just, we we're trying to kind of work through that, that complexity uh, within a settler colonial kind of framework. So that's just something that I'm starting to think about. And I, and I was just going to say, Tran, that, that 
that issue of the playground in some ways brings us right back to the same tension that really started our conversation today, which is, you know, uh, the extent to which we, we think about place critically in children's lives and how children um, author and construct that that sense of place and the and the other issue of uh, or the adjoining issue of uh, to what extent place really gets to matter and how it gets to matter in children's lives and who gets to make those decisions right um, which again and this this is the this is the tension it's it's a tension for children it's the tension for teachers and it's a tension for researchers as well. Um, so thank you for, for taking the time to kind of elaborate on those future directions. Um, again, I just want to thank you both uh, for taking the time to be with us today and for sharing your work and, and uh, answering our kind of tangential questions, some of which may have put you in a difficult spot, but we, we appreciate your, your honesty and the time that you've, you've taken to be with us. And of course, we very much appreciate the time that, that you took to present uh, some of your work uh, as part of the Childhood Art Speaker Series. And so uh, thank you very much. Thanks for having thank us. You. All right. So next time on Childhood Art, we sit down with Dr. Mona Sacker of Middlesex University in London. Until then, visit our website for additional updates and news at www.centerforthestudyofchildhoodart.com. Thank you.